If you could, please remain standing and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. May God bless the reading of his word. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who, were, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant And James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father God, what a glorious truth it is just in that last sentence there that the Son of Man, the Son of God came to give his life as a ransom for many. And Lord, what an incredible sacrifice it was and what a great debt has been paid on our behalf. And we are thankful this morning for salvation, pure and simple as it is, and yet beautiful and deep and glorious when we begin to explore it. Lord, we are a people that are not grateful enough. We are not thankful enough. You have given us so many blessings living in this country, being allowed to live the lives that we lead. Lord, we are thankful for our wives. We are thankful for our children. We are thankful for work to do, for a place to come and worship. We are thankful for opportunities to share the greatest news that has ever been given to the world. And Lord, forgive us when we fail to take those opportunities. Father God, we come expectantly to your word now. We want it to do good to us. We know that it has that power. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts to block out the worries of the weak, which are likely many. But Lord, we want to be completely and wholly present and wholly focused on what you would have to speak to us this morning through your servant. We ask for your blessing upon him and that we would not depart this room unchanged. 
We ask this in faith and in hope and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Christopher, for reading the passage there. If you have not already turned in your Bibles, do so now to Mark 10, 32-45. As we continue our study in the book of Mark, we're approaching the last couple of chapters. There's 16 in the book of Mark, and we only have six remaining, and yet uh, these last six are the dramatic uh, ending last or even week of the life of Christ and things are very much condensed down and packed in here for us. As we have uh, seen Fredericksburg grow over the years, uh, we've seen it grow uh, in many different ways. But there's one way that Fredericksburg has not grown that I think any of you that have a palate for fast food would say we need to grow in and that is we do not have a Chick-fil-A which is probably good for your pastor's figure but if you were to get in your car not today because they're closed on Sunday but if you would get in your car tomorrow morning and in your perusal for your morning coffee pull through Chick-fil-A and you are handed your cup of coffee and a biscuit and you express to them thanks, you will not get the phrase, you're welcome. You will get the phrase, my pleasure. Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, upon visiting the Ritz-Carlton Hotel one time and expressing some bit of gratefulness to the clerk behind the counter, found that phrase repeated back to him. Instead of you're welcome, the clerk said, my pleasure. And he noted, why not design a restaurant where the people that come in are served as if it's a high-end establishment. Though fast food will serve them well. In America today, as we have noted before, even in the book of Mark, we're not noted for service. We, we note one another by maybe our tax returns, the size of our house, what you do for a living. It isn't too many minutes into a conversation that you meet someone when you won't ask them, well, what do you do? Rather than, who do you serve? Service is not a high mark of how we live our lives today. But what is the greatest service ever supplied? And without a doubt, today's passage gives us a clear picture. The picture of the service of Christ. And if you're taking notes, you might just not jot down this sentence the humble service of Christ makes him first above all and misunderstood by many the humble service of Christ makes him first above all and understood by many if you're taking notes and uh, just it may be helpful for you to see how we're going to break the passage down we're going to look at verse 32 through verse 34 and then we'll look at 35 through verse 40 and 34, 41 through 45. Let's look at 32 through 34. Here we have the disciples in Christ. They're on this road. They're going up to Jerusalem. That phrase, going up to Jerusalem, we will see here in a minute, is helpful for us in understanding the passage more fully. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. 
this picture of the disciples trailing along behind the teacher, behind Christ, was according to rabbinical custom. Oftentimes, the person that you followed would walk ahead and you would follow behind. There's some amount of, of, of wonder and conjecture here in verse 32 because there seems to be almost two people, two uh, groups of people mentioned. And they were amazed. And then second group, and those who followed were afraid. And that's been studied uh, in depth. I don't think we have the time or need to study it in depth this morning. Other than to say, I don't think it's two groups and nor do many writers on this passage. Most refer to this as actually one group, namely the 12 disciples. If we take it as 12 disciples, I want you to notice two things. One, that they were amazed, and the second, that they were afraid. We've talked about before the the way our emotions can swing and oftentimes we try to sort of bring it into the middle and we don't want this great amazement and as well as this great fear and yet here you see that. This being afraid, we're not sure as to what they were being afraid about. Maybe it was that they were going to be afraid that they would not be first as we saw last week in verse 31. Maybe it was afraid of persecutions that were mentioned in verse 30. We're not sure what it was, but it is interesting to note that in the context of amazement and fear, the word of Christ to those that were in amazement and fear was the gospel. He didn't say, buck up guys, you'll be okay, be encouraged, strengthen yourself. No, he gave them the word of truth about himself. It is the gospel, it is the truth of the gospel that comforts our fears. I think it's unique to know, and we've studied this passage, 10 verse, ten chapters now, but just, it struck me this week, the fact that we have the words of Jesus Christ on printed page. This isn't some just good guy who happened to spit out some words, and somebody who thought, hey, you know, let's put these in red. They're extra special. These are the words of Jesus Christ. It's as almost as if we, we've been brought into this huddle of 12 guys and they're gathering around Christ and we're now in that huddle listening to the word of Christ. And he gives them the word of what is to come. This is the third time we have seen him foretell his death. We saw that in chapter 8 verse 31 as well as in chapter 9 verse 31. And you've probably heard the phrase, if something's in Scripture repeated once, listen to it twice, pay attention, third, very important. Here you have in the book of Mark the third telling of the death of Christ. Very important. And this third telling is the one that has the most detail. I would encourage you maybe this afternoon, go look at 831 and 931. Note the detail given in those and the extensive detail in contrast given here in chapter 10, 32, 33, and 34. The gospel, the good news of how God relates to man through Christ, changing us to now respond in ways that honor him. The work of Christ for the sinner, here told by Christ, is the culmination of redemptive history. All of the Bible is, is leading to Christ. All of it is pointing toward the work of Christ. And then the error, the era, not error, the era, the eternal era that he will usher in upon his coming. And he has 
come. I've entitled this section, Christ has died and has risen. Certainly the disciples only knew the foretelling. We know now the completed story. And he gives this account, Christ gives this account of what's going to happen. See, I'll note that word here in a minute. We're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him. Notice the way the abuse escalates. Mock, spit, flog, kill him. And after three days he will rise. Look at that word see. See. Look. Take notice of. Observe what Christ is going to do. He's saying to the disciples. We would say to even the unbeliever here this morning, if you do not know Jesus Christ, see and look to Christ. Some of you may have heard of the account of how Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, came to Jesus Christ under the preaching of the word. I quote his words. He wrote, this is what he said, Charles Spurgeon, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning. While I was going to a certain place of worship, I turned down a side street, came to a little primitive Methodist church. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen, 15 people. I heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoe tailor, tailor, something of that sort, went up to the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers be instructed, but this man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick, obliged to, stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was Isaiah forty-five twenty-two: Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words right. But that did not matter. There I was, a thought, a glimmer of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus. This is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, now look and don't take a deal of pain. and ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It just says, look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look, even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. He said in a broad Essex, many on ye are looking to yourselves, but there's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some say, look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look to me. Some on ye say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. This text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I will rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. O poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. When he had managed to spend out about 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. And then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so present few, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. 
but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow struck right home. And he continued, all you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. If you obey now, this moment you will be saved. And then lifting up his hands as he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. And Charles Spurgeon came to Christ. What about you this morning? How's your life? Is it in a bit of a tailspin? Does it seem a bit miserable? Look to Jesus Christ. See him as our text says. And for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, are we not grateful that Christ did rise? We'll sing here in even a few weeks. Up from the grave, he arose with a triumph over his foes. Resurrection Sunday, even as it comes by practical application for us as believers in Jesus Christ, let's be about the work even these next few weeks of inviting others to church. I wonder even this week if you've had the opportunity to share the gospel and if you've taken that opportunity. We want to develop as followers of Jesus Christ a culture of evangelism. So maybe even think back now and think of that person that you could have said something or that question that was asked that you could have directed into a gospel conversation. And let's be vigilant and let's be even bold this week to take full advantage of those opportunities and declare Christ to our communities. Matthew ten twenty eight: do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Let's not be timid about how men might respond to the gospel. Even this week, uh, while getting my hair cut, I shared with this on Wednesday, a gentleman who I've talked to many times as he's cut my hair. And yet this week he asked me, what do you do? And I told him I was a pastor. And, and I prayed for years because evangelism is a, is a weakness of mine, that things would just come easier for me. And I noted about 10 minutes later that I was deep into the gospel conversation with this gentleman and I didn't even realize what had happened. Let's pray for those opportunities and let's take full advantage of them. Even for, even for us as church members, may we be gospel-focused and Christ-centered, strengthening one another in the truth of what Christ has done for us as he declares here in 33 and 34. And so even by application, young people today, as you all go to lunch, encourage one another in Christ. Strengthen one another in Christ. Remind one another today as the service concludes with what Christ has done for us. Many have heard the gospel proclaimed but not all understand. And some of you probably have even that testimony. I was too young to remember that test. Remember not understanding when I came to Christ, but some probably remember well hearing the gospel for maybe even years. And then one day that proverbial light bulb came on and you understood. Let's transition now to the next section because James and John did not understand. This next section, 35 through 40, many will not understand. This is the parallel to the first passion narrative where Christ uh, states that he's going to go and die and Peter responds, oh, no, 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 I think you got it all wrong. This third passion narrative closes the bookend on it. Christ gives his foretelling and James and John now step up. 
Interesting, Peter, James, and John, all three on these on the Mount of Transfiguration. If anyone should have understood, it would have been them. And yet they did not understand at all. And they come to Christ and they ask him, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. When I think of that, I think of uh, one of my children coming up and say, Daddy, I want you to do something for me. And any father knows, you don't say yes. You want to hear, what do you want to do? That's exactly the way Christ responds here. What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in your glory. Now, it may be helpful for us to understand how Peter, excuse me, how James and John were thinking about this. Matthew 20 gives us some help, the parallel passage that he's speaking of their kingdom. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in your kingdom. And I think James and John were a bit confused. I think it's pretty clear on the true meaning of what it is to go up to Jerusalem. Now, you literally did go up to Jerusalem because it was up. It was high or up on a plateau. So you would go up to Jerusalem. But remember, Jerusalem is the city of David. And also, you have this phrase, after three days, he will rise. James and John are thinking of an earthly kingdom. They're thinking of a political rule. They're thinking, when you're sitting on your throne in Jerusalem, having been risen up in three days, we want to be your right-hand man. We want power, acclaim, wealth. We want a place in the kingdom. The question would be is, James and John, didn't you hear mock him, spit him, flog him, kill him? Again, it might be helpful to think of your child. Son, go pick up your room, comb your hair, then get in the car. We're going into town to get ice cream. You go get in the car. There's your son. Hair uncombed. Room unpicked up. What did he hear? Get in the car. Go into town. Get ice cream. James and John, here. Rise up. Political rule. Reign. I want to be there. Christ responds. You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Verse 38 can be translated, can you drink the cup that I am in the process of drinking? Verse 39, they respond, we are able. They have really no clue what they're even talking about or saying. Christ doesn't deal with them in their unknowingness here, but actually enables them. Romans 8, 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we also may be glorified with him. James and John don't realize that Christ is talking about his suffering and death, something that they could not join in. And yet, by the suffering and death of Christ, as we will see here in a few minutes, He enables them to join in suffering and death and even glory. We must understand that many will not understand the gospel. And in a world today where many false gospels are preached, the gospel of Jesus Christ needs to be declared as a gospel that is not a gospel of optimism or positivity. It's not a gospel of prosperity. It's a gospel of hope in this life now and for a life eternal, not in what you can do, but in the work of Christ. 
And yet we should also help them to understand, people to understand, that following Christ is difficult. Being a Christian is often misunderstood. And yet it may be helpful for us as we talk to people about being a Christian to refer to people who follow Christ not as Christians but as disciples of Christ because things become a little more clear in what it means to follow a Christ when you call someone a disciple of Christ because a disciple leaves it all behind to follow Christ. A disciple leaves it all behind to follow Christ and disciples reproduce These two things, leaving it all behind and reproducing, are two central truths of the lives of Christians that many don't want anything to do with. They misunderstand. But oftentimes, we're not giving the clear gospel. And we should assume even that people will not understand. When we're telling others about Jesus Christ, you should assume they're not going to understand. Because as we looked at last week, they cannot understand lest God, but God, does the impossible and saves them. Assume that they will not understand when you lose your job. Assume that they will not understand when your family disowns you. Assume people will not understand when your spouse leaves you. All for the sake of following Christ. Assume people will not understand when you have a smile in the midst of persecutions as was promised in verse 30 of Mark 10 all for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And yet we should be encouraged, Christians, this morning, because Christ never misunderstood. He is fully aware. He is fully aware that his suffering will be for many, and he is purposeful in his going to Jerusalem. He knows full well what lies ahead. Think of the, the times we've probably all ha- done it if you've lived in the country where you've tentatively, but knowing it's going to hurt, touched a barbed wire fence. And that bit of jolt for a second and you went, oh, I knew that was going to happen, but I did it anyway. How much more would it be knowing that you were going to be mocked? Okay, I, I think I can handle the mocking. Spit on, that's pretty humiliating, but you know, okay. Flog, kill. Christ knowing, never misunderstanding fully well what he was called to and marching resolutely forward. Church, let's not be surprised when upon receiving persecution, many even leave the church. Persecution is the sifting out of the lumps in the church. We should remind one another, even in the midst of persecution, of Matthew 5. Blessed are you when men revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We'll speak more here in this next section about the cup and the baptism being suffering and death. But quickly here, what is this baptism with which he is being baptized? He's a, Christ is saying, I'm showing solidarity or I'm showing unity with the church. Christ, in his, his speaking of baptism here, is speaking of showing his unity with sinful men and his willingness to assume the burden of the judgment of God. You can think of when uh, somebody is baptized as a believer. As they go down into the water and come out, they are, they are showing unity with the church. And the church is showing unity with them. 
And here Christ, by his taking on of human flesh, is being baptized, saying, I'm showing unity with all those sinful men and my willingness to assume the burden of the judgment of God. We'll speak about this in a minute. Lastly, last section here, verse 41 through 45. Many have been served. Point one was Christ has died and has risen. Point number two, many will not understand. Point three, many have been served. 41 through 45. Verse 41, and when they heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John, when the ten heard it. And Jesus called to them and said to them, there's a spirit of jealousy here. The other ten don't have it right either. They're thinking, we want the right or left hand. You're getting the right or left hand. We could probably all think of an idea that we had at some point and we told a little friend of ours and hey, this is a pretty good idea and then the next thing we know, a couple hours later, that little friend has told somebody else and sort of stolen our thunder. Hey, we wanted to be a part of that. And that's exactly what the 10 disciples are thinking here. Wait a minute, where's, where's our part? We want in on this as well. And so Christ calls all of them to him and he teaches them. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ultimately, this passage uh, speaking on service is a type of service, a service that only Christ can perform and even did perform. And yet Christ here, by example, calling his disciples, calling us to imitate his service to others. And the Apostle John, though, though in this account not his best day, eventually gets this calling to service. As he says in 1 John 3.16, he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. I find it interesting the fact that though the world does not measure one another by service, now as believers in Jesus Christ, our relationships with one another are now marked by service. You might just think of the relationships depicted toward the end of Ephesians 5 and Ephesians chapter 6. Whether it's the husband serving the wife, the wife serving the husband, the children serving the parents, and even the parents serving the children by not provoking them to wrath. Employees are to serve their masters as unto the Lord. And that passage there in Ephesians 6, the employers are then, are then told to do the same, serve their employees as unto the Lord. We have the 37 one another's that we've talked about before in Scripture of serving one another or in the, in the, in the workplace or even in dating relationships. We're to be marked as Christians by humble service to one another. And Christ-like service is, is not oppressive or weak. You notice he points out to the, the Gentiles there, probably speaking of the Roman rulers and how they lord it over them. They oppress other people. And so our service is not one of oppression or weakness. It's not one of self-reliance or self-righteousness. It's one of humility, but one of boldness. And even for the Christian, serving others is, is not simply checking off a box. It's not just simply going by the, the red kettle with the guy ringing the bell and dropping in some coins and saying, yep, I did my service. We even now look 
for ways to serve others. But let's conclude here by how, asking the question, how has Christ served us? And this passage makes this very clear with, the, with, the, with a picture. By taking, this is how Christ has served us. By taking the cup and baptism, we deserve an order that we might join with him in glory. Isaiah 53, 5. He was wounded because of our sins, bruised because of our iniquities. The chastisement which gives us peace has been upon him, and it is by his sufferings that we are healed. Jeremiah 25, 15 tells us about this cup. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Luke 12, 50. Christ, speaking of this baptism, says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Think of that last moment in the garden in Mark 14 where Christ says, Lord, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. It's not something he was just going to drink. It's not a physical cup. It's the wrath of God. And by his willingness to take the cup and baptism we deserve, our baptism that James and John said they could take, which he didn't say they couldn't, but by his taking it for them enabled them now a different type of baptism and a different type of cup. Luke 3.16, John the Baptist says, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Our baptism now as believers is suffering with persecutions. It says that in verse 30 of Mark 10. And of loving discipline, Hebrews 12, all enabled by Christ. We don't have to take the wrath of God as our cup. We get now the wrath of, we get now the cup of love. Wayne Grudem says this about this passage. The atonement 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The atonement is the work Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. Close quote. And the work of Christ in serving us on the cross and in his burial and resurrection is the one-time event that secures the way to God. It is effectual for all time. Now, here's what I want you to put into your mind as a picture that may be helpful for you to grasp the significance of this passage because I certainly can't explain it to the glory that is here. I want you to think of a cupbearer. And this is a a definition I found online of a cupbearer. And listen to this cupbearer as it is pictured in Christ. So see a cupbearer and see how Christ mirrors this or the cupbearer mirrors Christ. Quote, a cupbearer was an officer of high rank in royal courts whose duty it was to serve the drinks at the royal table. On account of the constant fear of plots and intrigues, a person must be regarded as thoroughly trustworthy to hold the position. He must guard against poison in the king's cup and was sometimes required to swallow some of the wine before serving it. His confidential relations with the king often gave him a position of great influence, close quote. Now, think of a stream. You might have followed at some point in your 
adventures through the mountains, hiking along, come to a stream, a spring of water. And think of that spring of water as it is flowing out and it becomes a, a river and many, many, many people drink of that water. It's pure. It looks beautiful. And yet that water is tainted. You cannot see it with the eye and yet but a taste of that water and you are condemned to die forever. It's just a matter of time. Think of that water as sin. We have all been born in sin and we've all tasted of sin and that sin now matter of time and we're condemned to death and the reason is is because though that water looks pure and clean though it looks wonderful there's a cup overflowing dripping one drop at a time every drop killing someone Instantly dripping into the stream. That water, that, that cup overflowing, dripping into the stream is a cup of poison. The cup of the wrath of God. Now think of a, a man making his way, his, his journey up to that spring in order to remove the cup and yet as he's going to serve and to save all the people that, have, that will drink and all do drink from that stream, as he's going to save the people, all they're doing is spitting on him and mocking him and hitting him and flogging him and wanting him to die. And yet, upon getting to that cup, he takes the cup and he doesn't, as a cupbearer, take one sip and place it back down. He drains the cup dry of the wrath of God. Christ, on our behalf, doesn't leave a little bit of wrath for the sinner. He takes it all for those who are saved in Christ Jesus. This is the greatest service ever. The life of Christ as a ransom for you and for me. He took a baptism that we could not take. He took and drank of a cup that we could not drink. He didn't leave a little bit. He took it all. And now as believers in Jesus Christ, that cup is not for us. In fact, we can now drink of the streams of living water. That is Jesus Christ. And we can eat of the bread of life. That is Jesus Christ. And when we come to the table next Sunday morning in communion, we drink and we eat because he has taken the cup that was reserved for us. But he has taken it, and he has drunk of it, and he has served, and he is the greatest of all, because he did what no one else could do. He gave his life as a ransom for you and for, you and for me. Brothers and sisters, are we not very grateful, and I trust even encouraged to go through this week, knowing that Christ's response to the Father's will was, yet not what I will, but you will. Or in closing the story we told at the beginning, simply telling God, and in response to us as well, my pleasure. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ knowingly 
with joy even, humbly, obediently, went to the cross on our behalf. Father, this does not minimize the pain that Christ suffered, but it actually maximizes the idea, the thought that Christ served us when we could not be served in any other way. Father, all of us have drunk from the well of sin and all of us in our sin are condemned to die. But the Son gave His life as a ransom for many. For many who will repent and believe upon the work of the Son. Father, we thank You for Jesus Christ. We thank You that all we have is Jesus Christ. We thank you for this week that we're not going to go through this week unaccompanied, unaccompanied by ourselves. But we have Christ. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you, Father, that you discipline us. We thank you that you even allow persecutions in our lives. As this is the, the mark of being heirs with Christ. And we look forward and long for that day when Christ will return and we will be with him in glory. In the precious name of Jesus we pray, amen.